Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We are so excited to announce that Words Matter Media is partnering with Cafe Studios to bring you a new season of the Words Matter podcast. Cafe strives to inform its listeners about the most critical issues of the day. Each week, Katie and I will do our best to bring facts and context to the often fraught political conversations that dominate our national discourse. We'll be speaking with an array of guests, including people who've made a great impact on American politics or who make it their business to understand what's really happening in Washington. For now, you can continue to listen to episodes of Words Matter for free. In the coming weeks, the show will be available exclusively to members of Cafe Insider. And we hope you'll consider joining the Insider community, whose members enjoy a collection of podcasts created for engaged citizens around the world. You can head to cafe.com slash words to get two free weeks of membership. That's cafe.com slash words. You'll get access to all future episodes of Words Matter and other exclusive content, including the Insider podcast co-hosted by Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Ann Milgram, former New Jersey attorney general, along with much more exclusive content. That's cafe.com slash words. And now for this week's episode. Our guest today is a best-selling author and has advised presidents, senators, governors, Fortune 100 corporations, and universities for 35 years. Doug Sosnick served as a senior advisor to President Clinton for six years as senior advisor for policy and strategy, White House political director, and deputy legislative director. He's the co-author of New York Times bestseller, Applebee's America, How Successful Political, Business, and Religious Leaders Connect with the New American Community. Doug Sosnick, welcome back to Words Matter. Great to be back. So, Doug, we always like to disclose up front that uh, we are former colleagues and friends. Doesn't mean I'm going to go any easier on you. But for our listeners who didn't hear Doug the last time he was on, Doug is famous in the political community for his memos and slide decks that get to the the root of what's going on in American politics. I sometimes am afraid to open them because there's some often is bad news for my candidates in there. But I think the last couple, I have welcomed them. But Doug is well known in the political community for understanding the American electorate. So, Doug, in the last one, you wrote the following sentence. Trump has changed our politics. COVID has changed our country. What did you mean by that? Well, if you think about COVID for a moment, uh, for anybody listening on, it's, it's hard to think of anything in our life that's the same now as before COVID. I was on the show with you guys in uh, middle, roughly middle of February, and in many ways that feels like a whole world ago. And the COVID virus has not only impacted, obviously, all aspects of our life in the short term, Um, But I believe it's going to change how we live, look at life, 
And many things that we do in our life will, will never be the same, even when we are able eventually to recover from the impact of the virus with the vaccine. But it was one of these black swan events that happened once every hundred years that it makes a, basically an existential change in people's lives. So you were, to your point, actually one of our last guests before COVID-19 shut down our production back in early March. So back then, our discussion was about and, and focused on Michael Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders in the race for the Democratic nomination. And to your point, it's amazing how much has changed. So let's start with how much COVID has upended the the presidential election on the Democratic side, given where we are now with the nominee and how much it changed the political landscape in, in general? Well, I think it changed the landscape for the general election quite a bit. I don't think it changed uh, very much the Democratic primary. Biden was able to consolidate the de facto nomination in a quick, shorter period of time than any Democratic candidate in 20 years. And that consolidation for the nomination had, had largely been done prior to the the, uh, the virus fully impacting our lives. However, for the general election, it changed everything in regards to Trump, who's as an incumbent, has to make a case for four more years. It completely changed in every aspect uh, the race that Trump was going to run to get reelected. You referred to, in your recent memo, you referred to Donald Trump as the Austin Powers candidate. Explain what you meant by that. Well, first of all, it's a test to know how, you you can tell if someone understands that, uh, how old they are, since those movies go back 20 years. But the essence of Austin Powers and Donald Trump is a profound lack of self-awareness of who they are and the surroundings that they're in. And the movies, there are several of them on Austin Powers, it was a guy that had been embalmed for 20 years and frozen and came back to Britain in the 90s as if it were back in the 1960s. And so he walked around, acted, dressed, treated women as if the world hadn't changed with, that, with no self-awareness about how much everything around him had. And that in many ways is Donald Trump, who I think not only romanticizes about a world that either never existed or if it it did exist, it hasn't existed for 20 or 30 years. And he goes around and knows about his life and what he does and what he says without any self-awareness about whether it's even remotely connected to reality, whether in any shape or form the people you're talking to believe a word he says. But both in the case of, of Austin Powers and Donald Trump, they keep plowing ahead as if nothing's wrong. So, Doug, we've been through some of the uh, difficult fights where Republicans start what we call culture wars. I was really struck on opening day of the baseball season when every single baseball player was kneeling for the national anthem. And as as we all remember, the NFL and and Trump was sort of the uh, catalyst for that movement. And I, I was struck that night by the thought that Trump has lost the culture war, but he doesn't know it. What do you think about that? Well, I think that we have had a culture war in this country going back to the 1960s. And Joe, you and I, given our age, spent decades fighting those culture wars where many more times than not, Republicans were able to politically benefit from engaging with those wars. But they, in a sense, were winning the battle 
but losing the longer-term war. As this country has changed now profoundly, it's changed both in terms of who we are as Americans by race, but also now millennials, uh, who are the, um, the largest not only population group in America, but also the largest voting bloc group in America. And millennials, regardless of whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or in many cases, neither, they're on a completely different side of the culture wars than what Trump has been promoting. And while they really are, are actually have quite tepid support for Democrats, millennials, they're not connected to the Democratic Party at all. As long as the Republicans are on the wrong side of these culture wars, they will never consider voting for them. So one of the things I took from your memo was while COVID is dictating the landscape, there was something happening before COVID. And in 2018 was, I think you called it a tipping point. Talk a little bit about that. So I I believe that we um, began the political realignment in our country in the early 1990s. Uh, with Ross Perot's candidacy uh, in 92 for president. And that continued through in the second term of Clinton in particular. And then you looked in the in the last decade with the Tea Party movement moving up. And so we've begun a political realignment that hit that tipping point in 2018. I don't believe Donald Trump caused that realignment. That was happening prior to his running. But he accelerated its conclusion. And there's a realignment now, and realignment means people are moving away from where they were to somewhere different, is we now are realigning by age, race, gender, and particularly education. And the culture wars you mentioned earlier that Trump used successfully in 2016 and built his presidency around was really the cudgel that was used against the Republicans as not only millennials moved uh, away from the Republican Party, but educated voters in general and suburban women in particular have moved away from Donald Trump and now the Republican Party because Donald Trump defines what it means to be a Republican. And so Trump is continuing to appeal his cultural wars to a declining group of people who tend to be older, male, and white. And our country is increasingly, as I said a minute ago, Millennials are the biggest population. We're increasingly becoming a non-white majority country. And he is alienating the suburban voters, which is the fastest growing group of voters in the country. Doug, I want to ask, you know, in any presidential election, there's a lot of focus in the media and, and among experts focusing on data that measures the classic indicators, you know, job approval numbers, handling of key issues like the economy and healthcare, and then head-to-head matchups both nationally and in key swing states, which we certainly have some of that. I think we saw this past week that Lindsey Graham is at least tied in one poll in South Carolina. But in your memo, you, you highlight another measure that doesn't get a lot of attention. So explain for our listeners what right track, wrong track is and why that's particularly important to incumbents and and where it is this cycle as compared to recent elections. So the first and most important thing to focus on, and this particularly is relevant when you compare 2016 to 2020, presidential re-elections, when incumbents are standing for re-election, is a completely different type of election than an open seat election like 2016. And almost inevitably, Presidential re-elects are referendums on the incumbent president. 
And it's largely, do you want four more years of where the country has been headed under the leadership of the sitting president? Or do you want to change? So for Trump, who so far has really not been able to articulate a vision of what he'd like to do if he were elected president for a second term, essentially the public is sitting here at this point very close to the election and basically saying, do I feel good about the direction of our country? Because elections are about the future, not about the past. And do I believe that the country is on the right track? And for an incumbent, the higher the view that we're heading on the right track, the more likely the country is going to give that incumbent president four more years. And so currently, only 20% of the people in the United States believe that the country is heading on the right track, which is the same numbers that Jimmy Carter had in 1980 at this point as he was getting ready to be um, overwhelmingly defeated for re-election, and around the same numbers that George H.W. Bush had in 1992 on his way to a pretty significant electoral feat. So when a majority of people, not only a majority, an overwhelming majority in the case of Trump, believe that the country is, is in the, going in the wrong direction, it would then make you think that it's unlikely that they're going to want four more years of the same. It's interesting that you say Trump hasn't been able to articulate a clear vision because it seems like something has shifted since we last spoke in February, where you said, like Trump, don't like Trump. He's got a clear vision of where he wants to lead the country. He's used the same words and the same language as when he ran back in 2016 and since he took office. What do you think has changed since then in terms of of being able to articulate that clear vision? You think we just got steered off track with COVID and, and now that vision is just dramatically changed or it's a part of the cultural moment we're having with Black Lives Matter or, or how did that change? Well, I would say the short answer is everything has changed, but more specifically for Trump, his entire presidency was largely built around his interest and focus on the economy. And back in February, uh, he was going to run for re-election based on his stewardship of the economy. Now, while he has never had a job approval number, not for a single day since he's become president of over 50%, he has usually had around a 10-point advantage on whether people think he's done a good job of handling the economy. And in fact, he still has, depending on the poll, at least a narrow advantage over Biden on who would do a better job of bringing the country back. But what's changed since February is we now have uh, unemployment rate now over 7%. The GDP growth for the second quarter of this year puts us on track for a negative 33.9% growth for this year, which is the lowest in history. You've got 25 some odd million people right now receiving unemployment. You have as many as 40 million people that potentially could be evicted from their homes. So in that kind of environment, it's pretty difficult to run for re-election based on your stewardship of the economy. So Doug, you argue and have argued for some time that campaigns tend to be decided by Labor Day. And they are fixed and the dynamic of the race is fixed. Is that the case this year? And why is that? Well, first of all, I would say that, again, everything is about whether it's an incumbent running for re-election or uh, it's an open seat. But I would say that uh, since going back to and including 1980, in which you've had six presidents running for re-election, the campaigns have largely been determined by the end of the second quarter 
of the election year. And there's a chart that I've had distributed that comes from the Gallup uh, Presidential Job Approval Center, which can show you of the four presidents who got reelected, how by the end of the second quarter of the fourth year of their first term, their job approval numbers were not only positive, but heading in a positive direction. And if you look at the two incumbents who were defeated, Carter and Bush, you can see that by the end of the second quarter, not only were their, were their job approvals in the below 40%, but they continued to go down all the way up until election. So I think for incumbents, generally, I would say at least six months out, around six months out, the, the term I would use, the cake is, is baked. People have made their minds up about that incumbent and whether they want four more years or not. And I think this year is probably no exception. So things like the conventions, the debates, Biden's VP pick, not likely to beat the metaphor to death, change the recipe or overcook the cake. Well, look, I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of in the land of the unknown. We've never been around the political environment like this. So you have to be somewhat reticent to be completely certain about the future. And I certainly was humbled by never thinking in 2016, for instance, that Trump could ever win. But I can say from history that I think the last time a vice presidential selection had an impact on the outcome of an election is probably 1960, when uh, Lyndon Johnson was put on the ticket with Kennedy, despite the fact that Kennedy hated him. And I don't think a debate has changed the outcome of a presidential election since probably 1976, when Ford asserted in the debate that Eastern Europe was not under uh, control of of, the Soviet Union. And the other so-called big event is our political conventions, which really, putting aside the fact that this year is we're going to have a virtual one, have really not had an impact in any election since at least 1968. And that's why even you, know, you can look back at some debates where Obama lost some debates in 2012, Bush saw some debates in 2004, uh, Trump lost some debates in 2016. But those are largely Rorschach tests for people. They come into these debates at that point in the campaign with a fixed mind about the candidates, and they largely watch the debates and and see things to reinforce their preconceived notions. And we'll probably get into it, but with early voting this year, a large percentage of people will certainly have voted before the last debate. So I I think it's unlikely that that these events between now and Election Day, and actually the voting starts in less than six weeks in early September, are going to change the trajectory and the, the arc of the presidential race. I actually want to ask you about the early voting. I think you're right, and it's fair to assume we're going to see a lot more early voting in this election in 2020 than we've seen in elections past. You cite a recent poll in your memo that said in Texas, 78 percent of the respondents indicated that they plan to vote before Election Day. And in Arizona, 76 percent plan to vote early. And in Florida, 73 percent. How does that change the 2020 presidential election landscape as a whole? Well, to be clear, that those numbers were, were in a CBS YouGov poll of the states. They asked in the poll when people plan to vote, and that's when those respondents, those are the numbers all above 70% that they said. Now, whether they actually do that or not is, is, is quite another matter, but that's what they said at least. And, and there's been much more polling that's come out since then 
which show that Democrats are much more inclined to vote early right. than Republicans. Democrats are in the 60% range overall in the country of planning to vote early. How does it change the election? How it changes most, and again, everything is determined by state law, but I think people increasingly are going to be voting earlier and earlier in the campaign. I mean, we've seen back in 2008, primary campaign is an example where Hillary Clinton carried, I remember, California, but she got overwhelmed on people that voted on election day in that primary for people supporting Obama. But people who voted in early January voted for, for Clinton. So when people vote early, they're voting based on what they saw or felt or saw at the time. And if you vote early and it's 35, 45 days between when you vote and election day, a lot can happen. But once you vote, um, you can't undo your vote. So I think the long and the short of it is, I think it shortens the amount of time that Trump has in many key states that vote early, like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. It shortens the window and time that he has left to change the dynamics in those states. Another thing that I'm I'm curious about is as we go into these final 90 days and hit those flashpoints of the debates and things that typically come up in, in these final months, Journalists often write about a, quote, October surprise in presidential elections, at least for the past 50 years or so. Give us a few examples of of what those are and what you think may be different about the impact of a possible October surprise this year. Well, the most recent October surprise was in the 2016 presidential election when James Comey came back into the debate about the uh, Hillary Clinton and, and their emails. What I've said, given the changes in voting, which uh, we just discussed in terms of the early voting, I think if someone were planning an October surprise this year, they'd be well advised to do it in September. And largely, these surprises are these, again, another example of a black swan event that changes the dynamic of a campaign. But I think for the most part, I want to go back one last time that um, Joe, I think, remembers with uh, George Bush. In 2000, the October surprise was, surprisingly, despite the fact that George Bush had been elected governor twice in Texas, it had never come out that he'd gotten a drunk driving charge and arrest in Maine. Uh, And so that came out at the end of October, and the thought was that somehow that could have potentially changed the race, but it didn't. But I think overall, putting aside the fact that it's too late to change an election, I think if you do something in late October, given the early voting, um, I think those are the exceptions and not the rules. And if you're counting on an October surprise to win an election, uh, that means you are pretty much in bad shape. Yeah, I remember uh, the drunk driving guy. Carl Rove told me at one point that he, he believed that that kept four million Republicans home and that Bush would have won more comfortably. That's just his opinion. I want to talk a little bit about Trump's strategy. I think there's a lot of people who scratch their head when they see him now back doing these briefings, which most journalists think are a disaster, and saying things like, Biden's bad for God. I I look at it a little bit differently. I, I think that he's trying to do two things. One is keep his base excited, and his base will believe whatever he says. They don't question his veracity. And secondly, degrade people's faith in the system, whether you think it will keep people from voting or whether he wants to stay afterwards. But put yourself in uh, Bill Stepien's position of running Trump's campaign. 
what would you do? Well, I think it's pretty clear, first of all, that Donald Trump is not someone with a lot of gears or a lot of different kind of plays. He really only has one kind of one play in his playbook, and he's never going to change from that. I do think they've made a couple of this, couple of uh, changes and decisions in their strategy. The first was Trump's view is basically up until about ten days ago that any day you're talking about a vi- the virus is a day he's going to lose, and every day that you can make it appear that life is coming back to normal, the more likely people are going to believe that we're going to come back to normal and they're going to feel better about the future. And so for several months, Trump's strategy was to deny the seriousness of the virus. I think in the last 10 days or so, and and he can never stick to a strategy because he has no impulse control, but I think in the last 10 days, they've tacitly made an acknowledgement that they're not going to be able to good news away the virus and that he's got to accept that it's real, accept that it's going to be uh, serious for a while, accept that we need to take measures like wearing masks and other things. So I think the first change of strategy was to acknowledge that the virus is here and is not going away, which was a big change from how he'd been acting for the past four months. The second was, I think they made a decision that they had the wrong narrative on Biden and the wrong argument against Biden, and they made a decision to go to, um, basically, he's controlled by the left, he's crazy left, and he's senile. That's, I think, largely where they're going to stick. Now, his other two parts of the strategy have not changed, and one is, as you mentioned earlier, he's not running for president in 50 states, he's running for president to win the Electoral College. And places, particularly in the industrial Midwest, like Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, and even Michigan, a much higher turnout in those states could actually benefit Trump more than Biden in those states. There were, according to Brookings, 475,000 people uh, in Wisconsin who did not vote in 2016, but if they had voted, they fit the profile with Trump voter. So Trump's running a electoral college strategy, not a national strategy. He's trying to build up that turnout of these occasional voters. Eight million people who would have supported the Republicans in 2018 if they voted, did not vote. So half the strategy then is to get that turnout higher, particularly in the Midwest. And the other part is to do everything possible to try to suppress the vote in these key states by making it harder and harder for people, the occasional voters, who if they come out to vote, get the profile of an anti-Trump voter. I want to ask about a a particular strategy and and one that's kind of evolved over the past 40 years, and and that's really appealing to the base and and going hard, hard right or hard left. So primary voters for both parties tend to be more ideologically extreme. We know that rather than the general election voters. So the best strategy for the fall campaign is to run to the middle after the primaries. You worked for uh, candidate Bill Clinton, who practiced this successfully in 1992 and in 96, when A lot of folks said that he was triangulating between Republicans and more ideological congressional Democrats. And then we saw Bush use this strategy in 2000 when he became, you know, the compassionate conservative candidate and after winning the Republican nomination. We saw that shift in 2004 and we saw this idea of running hard to the party's ideological base help get up that enthusiasm and drive turnout and and begin to really take hold And 2020, 
even more so than than 2016 seems to be one of those base elections. What does that mean, not just for Trump, but also for Biden and what we'll see on the virtual campaign trail over the next three months? Well, you're right about the trend in the past towards pivoting more to the base in the general election. We do have much more tribal politics in our country right now, where it's more important to get your tribe out the vote, and people don't cross tribes so much. A member of one tribe and tend to stay there. Um, so it was interesting in the 2020 primaries, the left really drove the debate in the 2020 primaries. However, Biden was nominated, and what was consistent in the primaries was when you ask Democratic primary voters, regardless of whether they're progressives or not progressives, what was the single most important thing that you're looking for in a Democratic nominee? They overwhelmingly in every poll said, whoever can best be Trump. And the perception was that Biden was the candidate that could best be Trump. Now, in the general election this year, Trump is absolutely running a base strategy, getting out the base to vote. I mean, he began with his inaugural address as president with a base strategy and never, ever once shifted from that. On the Democratic side, this is really not, and all the polling shows it, this is really not an effort for people to go out and vote for Biden because they're supporting what Biden, or that they have a left or middle or moderate view about Biden. This entire campaign, as I've said several times, in general, re-election campaigns are a referendum on the incumbent. Given who Donald Trump is and how Donald Trump has acted as president, both in his words and actions, this entire campaign is about Donald Trump. And so when you look at why Trump voters say they're voting for Trump, they say it's for Trump and they want to vote for Trump because he represents what they want the president. When you look at why people are voting for Biden by over two to one, they're saying that because not so much they're voting for Biden as much as they're voting to defeat Trump. So in this campaign, given that it's a re-election referendum, it's Trump being Trump, it's really, I think, less about progressives and moderates as it is about beating Trump. Although clearly, this is one of the factors that I'm sure Biden is thinking about right now as he thinks about a selection of a VP, is making sure that two constituency groups who are most anti-Trump, which are African-American voters and younger voters, that they feel that there's enough motivation and energy to make sure they actually come out and vote in November. Just remember, Donald Trump got a smaller percentage of the vote nationally when he was elected president than Mitt Romney got in 2012 when he lost the election. Romney got 47% of the vote. And Trump got 46% of the vote. So the real challenge for Democrats, it's not about are you left enough or whatever. It, it is getting making sure in the states that are going to determine it's a close election, it's the next president, that you get that turnout. But that's in this election, it's not going to be uh, ideological or philosophical as much as Trump. So, Doug, we have a long history of me coming in to your office when we were at the White House with a very novel, and I at the time thought were genius political theories, and it generally ended up with you laughing at me. So I'm going to try it again and see if I've gotten any better. One of the things, campaigns tend to divide into two kinds. If you've got a good record, you make it about yourself. If you've got a mediocre to bad record, you make it about your opponent. 
And we've got lots of examples of that. You know, George Bush in 88 made it about Michael Dukakis completely, never even talked about what uh, about himself. It strikes me that it would be wise for Trump to just talk about Biden. But in his DNA and in his psychological makeup, he always has to make everything about himself. Laugh or tell me I'm right or I'm wrong. Well, I think you're, you're I would say mostly right. I think, though, that I, I mean, I tend to oversimplify things because I don't think things are that complicated in politics. And I think the more simple you make it, the more likely you are to pull off whatever you're trying to do. There are really only three things that you really want to control in a campaign. You want to define what this race is about. You want to define who you are. And you want to define who your opponent is. And that's, that's really it. And so the best campaigns do that in a way that all three of those elements reinforce each other. So that in the case with Joe and you and I were working for Bill Clinton in his re-election campaign, you know, we talked about moving into the 20th century in the future, which was an implicit knock against Bob Dole, who looked old and acted old. And Clinton's whole argument was about a second term to build on the successes of the first term and not let up now when things are going well. And so, really, if you can get what's this campaign about, in a sense, creating a job description of who they should vote for, define you are in the context of your opponent, you're more likely to win. So, Doug, we really appreciate your time. Let me end by asking you, it's very difficult to see Trump, given all the numbers and all the charts, pulling this off. On the other hand, Biden can lose the election. So what does Joe Biden have to do over the next three months to make sure he doesn't lose? Well, so incidentally, which is ironic, this is without a doubt the most unpredictable environment we've ever seen, in, probably in American history, but certainly in presidential American politics. But what's ironic about that is if you look at the polling, the Wall Street Journal has done head-to-head numbers of Biden against Trump since the middle of 2019, the polling hasn't moved. So as we've had this unbelievable series of unpredictable events and the virus and every day Trump is out there with something new. And, you know, you think about four weeks ago compared to four weeks from now, and it's a lifetime. Despite all that chaos and all the changes and all the unpredictability the basic fundamentals of Biden against Trump or Trump as president and, and what is his job approval have largely stayed the same, which is pretty remarkable and suggests that it's less likely and more likely that the remaining time in the campaign is going to change that dynamic. Um, but back to your question about Biden, I think that from Trump's standpoint, there are probably three areas against Biden that he's hoping to change the dynamic. That's Trump has had two or three good press days probably the last five months, and that's really it. So in the case of beating Biden, I think the factors that would help Trump change his dynamic are, one, if Biden had a health event, um, two is whether Biden create, had some serious gaffes and not just, you know, intemperate small board gaffes that they try to make into a big deal. And the third would be that if Biden uh, in the debates 
proved just really not up to the job of being president. Uh, but those are, uh, from Trump's standpoint, those are all things that are largely out of his control. But he's completely dependent now on basically uh, the short version is uh, Biden screwing up. Let me ask you one final question, Doug, and, and ask you to make a prediction or a guess in something that you said is the most unpredictable election that we'll have. But given two things that I think will be critical to to the ultimate resolution of the election and that we've talked about is the Trump strategy to suppress turnout and even the vote in certain areas and with certain people and the number of early voters and mail-in ballots that we'll see that don't have to be mailed in until election day. What do you think the likelihood is that we know the results of the election on November 3rd? And as a second part, that the ultimate resolution of this election will be from the voters rather than something more similar to 2000, where we saw the ultimate resolution come out of a, a court case and the nine up on the Hill? Well, so a two-part question. The first question about the election being decided on November 3rd. I think it's unlikely that we're going to have an election on November 3rd, which everything is certified and it's done. So from a formality standpoint, I don't think you'll have the kind of traditional formalization of the outcome by midnight or the next day. But I think you could certainly have a de facto conclusion to the election in which it's clear what the outcome is going to be. Back to your question, though, on um, what happens if this thing gets tied up and, you know, the voters take it out of the voters' hands. I would say the following. One is the Supreme Court, uh, in their recent decisions about a month ago, they could not have been more clear in sending Trump a signal that if he's looking for them to keep, for him to stay in office, they better look somewhere else, that they don't have his back. That was part of some of the messaging that they put out in their recent rulings to the White House, was to telegraph that. The second thing is, and I remember Joe and I were meeting with President Clinton during impeachment, you know, the discussion was basically that the Republicans could never remove Bill Clinton from office, but the Democrats could. And that's how Nixon was forced to resign. It wasn't the Democrats that made him do it. It was the Republicans came to the White House and told him it supported Crumble. And I think that the Republicans will tell you privately what a burden Trump has been for the last four years and how every day they have to wake up and defend the indefensible. But even they, in the last week, despite the fact they've become largely supplicant to him out of fear of alienating the base, on things like early voting and some other issues that he raised are postponing the election, they went out full throat. McConnell, McCarthy, who's close to Trump, and said unequivocally the election will be held on November 3rd. So I don't believe the Republicans will for a moment allow Trump after the election to somehow try to change the outcome or not leave office. Unless and until, back to your analogy or example, if you did get something as close as 2000, or there you know, are several states where it's unclear and they're voting or whatever, I think that's another story. But I think it's going to have to be way outside the realm of a 2004 close election for, for anybody, whether it's the courts or the Republicans, not to mention the Democrats, that it would in any shape or form give Trump any comfort 
of staying outside of our democratic process about who the next president is. All right, Doug. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. As always, it is illuminating and we learn plenty. Thank you. Nice to be back with you guys. Thank you, Doug. All right, Joe. So for what's on your mind this week, I want to ask you about your op-ed that you wrote for CNN.com that said Biden should not debate President Trump. Why do you think you got so much attention, particularly from conservative media on that point? Well, for for context, I wrote a piece that talked about, and, and I think Doug really fleshed out the argument in our interview, that Trump can't win this election on his own. The only way he gets reelected is if Biden loses it. So I was trying to sketch out in this piece what Biden needed to avoid. Uh, And there were a lot of things, and it was a list of six. The debates was number five. And I said, don't debate. And my reason that he shouldn't debate Trump is that it's very difficult to win a debate with Trump because Trump never tells the truth. So you're constricted by trying to make your point and correct him and you never get your point through. And he will just continue to spew the things we've heard over the last five years. So why did it get so much attention? I think it got a lot of attention because I think some people in the conservative movement thought I was floating a trial balloon for the Biden campaign, which is not true. I never talked to anyone in the Biden campaign about it. It was just simply an idea I had and didn't clear it with them, just wrote it. But secondly, they're grasping for an issue. And they now want more debates and they want debates earlier for the very reason that Doug was talking about, early voting and the fact that they've got to change the dynamic in this race somehow. And I think they believed there was some advantage into creating the impression that Biden was afraid to debate. And and it sort of built on that, their campaign theme that, that Biden is senile. Biden is not afraid to debate. He will debate. And I, even when I wrote this, I knew he was going to debate, but I, I just believe that he shouldn't. And there's a risk in that because, you know, J- Joe Biden's a guy who stands up for himself and stands up for his people. And he's not going to just laugh off personal attacks. He's going to come back at Trump. And, and I think that's what Trump wants. So I think he will debate. This was not the beginning of a left wing conspiracy to get out of debating. But my advice is still the same, which is don't take the bait. Because all you have to do is let Trump show how crazy he is and by comparison, how stable and smart and with it you are. There's a little less to all of the press on that than you might have expected, but it is a sign of the right wing in the country grasping at straws. I just happen to be holding one of them. All right, Joe, it's always good to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Katie. Talk to you next week. As always, thank you to our listeners for joining us again this week. We hope you found our conversation with Doug Sosnick informative and that you'll continue to tune in to Words Matter. As we mentioned, you can listen to the podcast in this feed for free for the next few weeks, but it will soon be available exclusively for members of Cafe Insider. To join and get two free weeks, Head to cafe.com slash words. That's cafe.com slash words. That's it for this week's episode of Words Matter. Your hosts are Joe Lockhart and Katie Barlow, and the executive producer is Adam Levine. Words Matter is produced in association with Cafe Studios. 
The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. Audio production by The Hangar Studios. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.